0: Welcome to the New Testament
1: Review, where every episode we discuss an influential piece of New Testament scholarship.
0: I'm Dr. Laura Robinson.
1: I'm Dr. Ian Mills.
0: And we are graduates of Duke University in New Testament (laughs) studies.
1: Congratulations, Laura, on recently finishing your doctorate.
0: Congratulations, Ian, on having not so recently completed your
1: doctorate. (laughs) Within the last year or so. Come on, that's recent enough.
0: Oh, that's (laughs) recent enough. Okay.
1: Today, we're discussing the stilling of the storm in Matthew, published by Gunther Borkum, in 1963, this is a influential work on redaction criticism that gets on everyone's doctoral reading list. Everyone feels like they have to cite this when they talk about redaction criticism. And as mm-hmm. Laura and I will discuss, I'm not sure it deserves that honor. But a good one to discuss. Yeah. Laura... What's this article about?
0: So this article is about the adaptation and interpretation of the stilling of the storm pericope in the gospel narrative, specifically as it occurs in the Gospel of Matthew, redacted from the Gospel of Mark. When we say redacted, we mean adapted from and edited from, right? Bornkamp is starting with the narration of Jesus stilling the storm in Mark and how this particular story exists and functions in that text and what message it has. And he is looking at the way in which it is changed over in the Gospel of Matthew to make an argument that this pericope is serving a different function in Matthew's Gospel that is more in line with Matthew's larger theological project.
1: Bornkamp begins his article by presenting sort of the conclusions of form criticism as what he calls the accepted result of New Testament inquiry. And if you want to know more about form criticism, you can go back and listen to our episode 43, Karl Ludwig Schmidt, and hopefully we'll have more episodes coming out on Debelius and Boltzmann. But for the purposes of this article, the key assumption for Bornkamp is that, and I quote, the Gospels must be understood and interpreted in terms of kerygma and not as biographies of Jesus. So, this is largely picking up something from Debelius. Debelius has this argument that stories about Jesus begin and are transmitted as the preaching of the early church. Uh, there aren't historians following Jesus around. There aren't people who are cataloging the events of Jesus' life. There is no documentary archive kept by churches of the records of Jesus' life. Rather... These begin as the missionary preaching and the sort of moral preaching of the church. So Debelius's project is all about reconstructing the different kinds of sermons that gave rise uh, to the different gospel stories. And this is super useful for Borncomb. Jesus, he says, is not a figure of the past, and thus is no museum piece. He's interested in the way Jesus was useful for Christians, in retelling the story. And as we're going to see, he's going to argue that the stilling of the storm, the story he's focusing on, is, in Matthew, being reshaped for preaching purposes.
0: comes starts with the assumption that Mark has a reason why he tells his stilling of the storm story, uh, and that he is telling the story as a as a tale, right? This is what the story in the narrative past served this function of being a... Preaching tool, a teaching tool for Christians, who would tell these visually compelling short narratives of miracles Jesus did, over over nature or um to to demonstrate his power. Right. So the way we see this happen in Mark's gospel, for instance, is the fact that there is the storm, and then there's there's this uh visual detail of Jesus being asleep on a pillow uh in the stern that he's not reacting, he's just asleep on his cushion and he's uh and he's very much at peace. And then the disciples have to go wake him up, ask him, uh, don't you care if we're perishing? Uh, and then he comes and stills the storm, right? So what does Matthew do with that story to advance his own theological interests, right? This is what uh, Borncomb is asking.
1: And Borncombe, of course, is working with Mark in priority. So Mark is the first version of the story for Borncomb, Uh, And he says that Mark has this grouped, As does Luke, for that matter. Mark and Luke have this grouped in a series of miracle stories organized geographically. Matthew, this is the beginning of Borncombe's positive argument, moves this story.
0: Matthew has placed this story at the end of two sayings about discipleship. In Mark, the reason why Jesus is on the boat going across the ocean is because he was in the boat to begin with. He is preaching from the boat, and then his boat and a bunch of other boats all leave across the sea together. And then this is what leads into the story of the gathering demoniac. Matthew changes this story so that it is after a series of sayings where Jesus is asked about the nature of discipleship. So, you know, the scribe says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says that foxes have holes and birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Or Jesus asks someone to follow him, and then he says that he uh, has to go bury his father. And Jesus says to let the dead bury their own dead, right? So we have a few sayings in a row about the question of discipleship and what it means. In each of these stories, there's a moment where Jesus asks someone to follow him, and that person either has some reservation that Jesus answers back to, or someone asks to follow Jesus, and Jesus makes it clear that they haven't really thought about this all the way, right? So we're in this block of material about discipleship as following, where Jesus wants you to take this commitment very seriously as a reader, and is sort of pushing back on people who seem to not be taking it as seriously, right?
1: So Borncombe's argument is that the story is now placed after two stories about following Jesus, and then he notes, by comparing the text of Matthew to the text of Mark, that Matthew has created de novo a new introductory sentence, a sentence that's not found in the Gospel of Mark, and this sentence features prominently the word to follow, And embarking with him onto the boat, his disciples followed him. So it features the verb to follow. So there's Borncomb's first argument. Matthew has moved the story, why? And then a new sentence that features the verb to follow, just like the two preceding stories.
0: So at this point in the story, the storm starts and they go to Jesus. And then we have this significant change from Mark. In Mark, what happens is the disciples ask Jesus, don't you care if we're perishing? Which is a fairly accusatory question, right? Like, uh, Jesus is asleep in the stern of the ship, and they ask him, don't you care? Don't you care if we're drowning, right? And then Jesus gets up, he performs the miracle, and he asks the disciples, why did they doubt, right? In Matthew, the disciples go to Jesus, and instead of saying, don't you care if we're perishing, they say, Lord, save us, we are perishing, which has a very formal sound, right? It's not nearly as accusatory. It's not nearly as angry or indignant. It almost has a little bit of a worshipful sound, right? Lord, save us. We're perishing.
1: Burnham argues that this is a kind of prayer and the, the Courier, uh, Lord, he describes as a confession of discipleship. Save us. You can imagine this being the sort of thing that the preacher who is creating the story in Bornkem's mind, the preacher would suggest is a good prayer for you. Lord, save us. We are perishing. Um, it sounds like the kind of thing you might find in liturgies today. So this is piece of evidence number one for Borncomb within the story that this is being rewritten to serve some other function other than just here's another miracle of Jesus.
0: Jesus gets up and he says, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And he seals the storm and there is a great calm. Uh, again, this is a transformation from Mark. In Mark, Jesus gets up and stops the storm immediately and then confronts the disciples.
1: So the second transformation of Mark and material that Bornkem wants us to pay attention to is the reordering of the events. The disciples are criticized for not having faith before the miracle happens. And it seems to me the suggestion is here that this reflects the situation of the church, the lived experience of the church, that Christians are are experiencing some kind of persecution or hardship and have not yet seen Jesus' miraculous work as opposed to Mark and Luke which is all about the disciples' just failure to recognize the historical Jesus so he does the miracle and then he corrects them yeah. so it seems to me I'm reading into Bornkem a little bit here but it seems to me that Bornkem here sees Matthew again reworking the story to be about the experience of Christians hearing this preaching The third transformation of Mark and material that Borncomb wants us to notice is that the story ends with this saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? A sort of call to the reader or the audience to make the confession that Jesus is Lord and commit to discipleship. And the speaker for this in Matthew is anthropoi, is men or humans generally, not just the disciples. In the story world, the disciples are the only people around. But he doesn't say the disciples said this in Matthew. Rather, it's people in general. And Bornkem's suggestion is this is a sort of choral ending. This is a sort of an invitation to imagine yourself saying this, to imagine a preacher saying this to you. It's a sort of, it's taking the miracle narrative from Mark and making it into a sort of timeless, placeless message about the call to discipleship.
0: What does all this leave us with? Borncom is looking at Matthew and comparing it with the source text of Mark to determine what Matthew is very specifically trying to do with this, right? Borncom has this quote of Matthew being the oldest exegete of Mark, right? So he's not just telling us the story. He's also interpreting it. He's also pushing it towards a specific meaning that matters for him. So the places that Borncomb sees transformation is the language of following, specifically that the disciples are following Jesus into the boat. That suggests this is a passage about discipleship, that there is this moment of prayer and response of save us, Lord, we're perishing on the boat. And then there is this liturgical moment at the end that Borncomb identifies that the, the people who see Jesus do this, it's no longer they, it's the people who say, who, what, what kind of person is this, right? Where Borncomb adds all this up is this idea that this is a story that is primarily about the experience of being a disciple, right? That there is danger in being a disciple, and then there is fear in being a disciple. That's the primary image that there, he's going with.
1: And there are things to like about this article. Borncomb is doing redaction criticism. He's paying attention to the way Matthew transforms Mark, and he's paying attention to the narrative structure of the Gospel of Matthew. Um, he's actually concludes by calling out the form critics for overly atomizing the treatment of the gospels, treating stories as if they're in isolation and ignoring the larger literary structures and sequence of the gospel. Borncomb isn't the first or best person to do any of this for the record, but these are all good moves. And it's a nice, succinct argument showing how you can read the Gospels this way.
0: What Bornkem is bringing to the table that w- will eventually become very influential, and you know, again, he's not the first person to do this, is not treating the Gospel stories as individual blocks, right? And noticing where this passage is placed in relation to others, right? And that's all really important and really valuable. And I, and I don't want to dismiss that.
1: If you want to hear someone anticipating Bornkem in this respect, yeah. go listen to our Vreda episode. He does both Matthew and Luke's redaction of Mark and pays attention to narrative yeah. structures and overarching themes.
0: None of this is brand new, right? It's, I, I think in Matthew's scholarship, you know, I was looking at the Davies and Allison commentary before we recorded this. I think the idea that this, this story has become sort of a parable of sorts, example story of what it means to be a disciple and how it feels to be a disciple... Has become sort of um, axiomatic in Matthew's scholarship since. I think this is a reading that makes a lot of sense to people. From my perspective reading this, I feel like there is a lot of...
1: Matthew is a tempting place to look for a story that is about the experience of the church. Because Matthew, of course, is the only gospel where Jesus discusses the church. Matthew is the only gospel where Jesus explicitly, you know, uses the word church. Um, More so than other gospels, Matthew is the gospel where you can find statements about church polity and things like that. So it's comprehensible to me to sort of look to Matthew to find a story where something about the life of Jesus is being reworked into something like a straightforward parable about the life of the church.
0: That's where I would start with one of my major questions about this, is the instinct to read everything through the language of, quote unquote, the church. It's very common to hear Matthew talk about as the gospel of the church and first text that starts to really think of the church as an independent institution, right? Which is true. Matthew is the only gospel that mentions this phenomenon at all, the ecclesia. But the church also only appears twice in the whole gospel by name. One of them is Peter on this rock, I'll build my church, which is this very eschatological side of time theological image of what the church is. And then the other one is in the church discipline section that if somebody sins and won't repent, you tell it to the church, right? So we have two very different definitions of the church functioning here. And those are um, the only two there are. On one hand, because Matthew is the only one who uses this word, we're very quick to assign ecclesiology to Matthew. On the other hand, there's just not that much data about how Matthew is thinking about quote-unquote the church that I don't want to immediately go to the idea that the boat is the church, right? And that like the experience of being in the church is what's at issue here. It actually seems to me a little bit that Borncombe might be drawing more on Cyprian in talking about the ar- the church as the Ark of Salvation and using that boat imagery for the church. Church as boat is a thing in Christian literature, but I don't think it's actually in Matthew. So I think that would be one of the first places I would push back a little bit.
1: It isn't that this is absurd and there's no way Matthew could do something like this. It's that I actually don't find Borkum's positive arguments especially compelling And the changes he's noting, I think there are better explanations for that fit into what I see as redactional patterns in Matthew. Where Matthew is making certain kinds of changes that actually explain these things better and there's more evidence for these kinds of changes made throughout the gospel. So to start, this whole idea that this story is about following Jesus is pretty weak. Following is not the payoff of the story. The only following that happens is a description of them getting in the boat. The story isn't about following. The idea that Matthew is setting this up with two stories about following, that verb to follow is extremely common in the gospel tradition generally. There's nothing distinctively Mathean about Mm it. And Borkham points to the use of the word Lord as evidence for this really being about following. But that word Lord is a not infrequent way of addressing Jesus in the gospels. It means something like master or boss guy.
0: Curie is not even a word that insiders use to talk about Jesus in the gospel. It's the title that the centurion uses to address Jesus, who's asking for healing for his uh, slave slash child. It's, it's not clear that Curie is really doing heavy liturgical work, I don't think.
1: Also, as Laura noted, Mark's version of the question is pretty accusatory. I think a better explanation for Matthew's changes to this particular question, is something we see across Matthew's gospel. That is, him casting the disciples in a better light than the rather critical portrayal we find in Mark.
0: The last thing Markham notes is that at the end of the miracle, the people who say, who is this, who uh, the wind and waves obey, that Matthew has changed it to the people, the men, who saw this, said this, as opposed to what Mark has. But when you look at what Mark has, it's hard for me to say that what's actually happening is that Matthew is taking a specific reference in Mark and making it general to make it more useful for church function. Because Matthew has the people said this, the men said this, but what Mark actually has is what Mark always has, which is a verb with no antecedent. Mark is very fond of taking these third-person plural verbs and letting them sort of stand on their own in their story of, like, they said, they did, they saw, and, and and not really clarifying who is doing the action, right? He's very comfortable with just doing this. And Matthew also likes to clean them up a lot. When we compare Matthew and Mark, a lot of times those are the changes Matthew is making. When they heard this, they were indignant, but Matthew will say that when the Pharisees heard this, they were indignant, right? Like, Matthew will make sure that we know exactly who is doing it, right? And, and that's exactly what's happening at the end of this parable, is that they said, who is this? Uh, they were afraid, and they said, uh, who is this who the wind and waves obey, right? And Matthew doesn't like that. Matthew likes it to be clear who is actually doing this. And he adds in that specification that the people who were on the boat did this, right? Matthew is making it clear just to clean up Mark's writing.
1: One of my overarching issues, I think, with this article is I just don't share the assumption of the first sentence, that this isn't some kind of biography about Jesus, or this isn't really about a person in the past, but about the experience of the church. I do find redaction-critical readings of this extremely plausible, but what I see here is what Matthew does with Mark throughout his gospel, which is he rewrites Mark in material, in line with Jewish eschatological expectations. So we see Matthew here changing the language of Mark to line up with prophecies about the ends of days. Uh, Joel Marcus has a great article on this Mm -hmm. earthquake in Matthew that starts off the wind and the waves that is not found in Mark. And the way this invokes Jewish eschatological images and language found um, in contemporary apocalypses and found Mm -hmm. in the prophets and things like that. And we see... Matthew doing this throughout his Gospel. We really need to do a whole episode on Dale Allison's book about the way Matthew reshapes Mark to make Jesus look more like Moses. We could also talk about the two donkeys at the end of Matthew, how this is an assimilation of the Markan narrative back towards Zechariah. There is redaction going on here. And we can learn things about Matthew by the way he's reworking Mark. But it seems to me that this is about Jesus. Which doesn't mean his interests, his, his current situation is not in some way informing the way he's telling the story about Jesus. But I think the form critics in general, and Bornkamp plays into this, oversell how much this is about the current situation of the church. And undersell the fact that people wrote narratives about figures of the past because they were interested in those figures of the past. Without denying that authors represent the past in ways that are useful and relevant to their present.
0: There's a lot of material in this that has other explanations than the explanation that Borncomb goes for, specifically the idea that this is primarily about discipleship and about the experience of the church. And also we can look at other ways in which this is still supposed to be a story about the life of Jesus, and this is still supposed to be telling a story about Jesus and not necessarily about his followers. So there's good material to push back on in this.
1: I love the line that Laura alluded to earlier, that Matthew is not only a hander-on of the narrative, but also its oldest exegete. And I think that's dead on. I think absolutely we can look at Matthew as the first reader of Mark that we have access to. And there has been a ton of interesting work on this, and that work is what we call redaction criticism. So I'm sure this article will continue to be cited. Uh, I find it a good illustration of a method Although not its most compelling case study.
0: And not in the direction I would take this story personally.
1: Well, thanks so much, Laura.
0: Oh my gosh, it's so good to be back and recording live episodes again. Fun to do this. Awesome.
1: Maybe one day we'll start up the after parties again, too. I would
0: love to do that. Those were fun. Thanks, Ian.
1: Talk to you soon. Take care. Yeah, talk to you soon, Laura.